Amen. Well, as we continue in worship, would you take your copy of God's Word and open up this morning to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. We have spent three months talking about the presence of God. It is very unusual for us to spend that amount of time talking about a topic. Our normal habit is to walk through books of the Bible and Lord willing, starting the third week of January, I will begin our next book of the Bible. And I'm not going to tell you what that is. You'll have to come back and see. But it, it felt really important to me for us to just for us to camp out on this idea of the presence. First of all, because I, I wasn't confident we all understood what that meant, and I, and I needed to go a little deeper in my understanding of God's presence. I, I think we know that that exists, but, but understanding that it is to be real and felt and experienced and not just this distant omnipresence of God, but God wants you to know him personally and intimately and experience his presence. I want us to understand that and then understand what that means in corporate worship. And so... I just felt like we needed to spend some time on that. And then thinking about the fact that God's presence is central to our vision as a church. Like it's hard for me to put into words how deeply I feel um, the longing for us to, to grab a hold of that vision that we as a church would be the visible presence of Jesus. The invisible God being seen in Jesus and now being seen in the body of Jesus, the local church. And so the way that God makes himself visible the way God becomes present in any home or any community is through the presence of his people. And so we become the visible presence of God. And then that we as a church might experience and enjoy and expand his presence. And so central to everything we want as a church is God and God's presence. God's presence when we worship. God's presence in your life. God's presence in your relationship and in your marriage and in your home and in the life of your children. When we pray, God, your kingdom come. What are we saying? We're saying we want the presence of God to come. Uh, and someone told me that the greatest prayer that you can pray for your children is simply, or any lost person, God, your kingdom come. So what are we saying? We want the presence of King Jesus to invade hearts. And so when we say this morning, God, your presence, uh, we want your presence, we want your kingdom to come. What we're saying is the presence of King Jesus to come and take over as only King Jesus could do. And and so it felt important for us to just get this in our DNA that we would understand this language and we would move forward uh, believing this and understanding this the same. And so as we kind of transition out of this series on God's presence, I feel both a greater burden and a greater conviction uh, in regards to God's presence than I've ever had before. The burden is for every person that comes in contact with Prince Avenue Baptist Church to know this. That you would be led into intimacy with Jesus Christ. Like I want to spend my ministry as long as God will keep me here until the day that I breathe my last breath leading you to know the presence of God and leading you to experience and to enjoy him, uh, to begin by knowing him as a master, but then to know him as a father and know him as a friend and then know him as the lover of your soul where the greatest passion of your heart, longing of your soul is intimacy with Jesus. I am so jealous for you to know that. And I am burdened that our community know that. I am, I am burdened that what happens in here and what happens in you would spread out there. 
We are surrounded by people who think that God is distant and unknowable and not real or just about the rules. And what we're saying is, no, there is a God that has obeyed all of the rules in Christ and credited it to your account. And now he is simply inviting you to know him and enjoy him. And I want people to know that. And I want that to be the theme of our church. And I'm burdened with that, a new, fresh burden. But I'm also coming out of this with a really strong conviction. And here, here's the conviction that is stirring up in me, and I'm gonna talk about this more at the very end. The conviction is that the only unstoppable force in the world and the only hope of the world and the only hope for our nation and the only hope for our community, the only hope for your family and for your marriage and for your children, the only hope of the world is Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, spirit-filled, presence-centered, healthy, growing local churches. That's it. Like the only promise that we've gotten about an unstoppable force is Jesus saying the very gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Which means that the hope of the world is the church. The very body of Christ. A good, healthy church. And more than ever, I feel like what we're doing is we're doing exactly what God has called us to do, giving our best for the church, investing in the church, because it is through the means of a local church that God will begin to make serious and dramatic change. It is only through the ministry of the church that people will be changed from the inside out. That God would come invade their hearts and then they would be changed, not because we're telling them to change, but because the very living God is inside of them. And I want to be that church. <laughs> like, I want to be that church. I've said to you multiple times over the last three months that I fear, and I, I do fear regularly, I think in a good healthy fear, that it's so easy for us to be that church in Revelation 3, the church of Laodicea, that is wealthy and that prospers and that really doesn't think they need God, but yet they're still doing church. And they're attending and they're going, and everyone on the outside would say, hey, that's a great church. That's a, that's a growing church. They've got activities there for our family at the church. The church of Laodicea seemed to be a growing, thriving church. There was only one problem. God was not coming to church. How do you know that? Because he was outside of church knocking on the door. Just think of that picture of God outside those doors right there saying, I'd love to come in. And they don't even know he's not there. They don't even know that after the end of the worship service, thousand people came, but God didn't show up. Like we're not gonna be that church. Like we are gonna make our greatest ambition that God is present and God is moving and, and God is active. We get on our knees and pray. Why? Because we're inviting the presence of God. We want God and we know how easy it is because we've all done it to just play church. But we're not going to do that. Because when God shows up and God manifests himself and God makes himself known, you just can't play church any longer my conviction, that's my burden that God wants to stir that up in our hearts. What I want is for the cry of our heart, and by our, I mean not just me, but you, 
as a part of this church, that the cry of our heart would be the cry of Isaiah. I love this. In Isaiah 64, write that down. Isaiah 64, such a great cry. It says this, oh God, that you would rend the heavens, tear open the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. That's the heart cry of Isaiah. God ripped the heavens open and come down. I want the cry of our heart to be the cry of Moses when he says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. I want the cry of our heart to be the cry of David when he says, there is one thing I ask and one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, listen, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I want the cry of our heart to be that of the Apostle Paul where he says, oh, that I might know him. That word know there is an experiential knowledge, not just a mental understanding, but that I may know him experientially, that he may be real to me. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. I want to be like him in his death. And so everything that is known of Jesus, I want to know. I want to know resurrection power. I want to know crucified life. What he's saying there is, I, I want God to be real and known to me. And it's all about us seeking the, the presence of God. And so what I want to do this morning is, is I want to give us kind of a passage that can kind of be our, our psalm. I want something for us to hold on to that says everything that we're about. And I really believe there is one passage that says all of it. Like it really does in one passage, take everything that we've said in the last few months and say, this is the church we want to be. And so, I mean, I know that you're going to consistently go back and listen to all of those messages from the past. So I know that. But I also want you to have one passage where you can just hold on and say, this is it. I want us to have a song. You know, you know how couples have songs? You know, you got your song. Anybody have a song? Adam and Jill, y'all got a song? You got a song? You got a song. Couples got a song. Andrew, we don't have a song, do we? I'm going to pick out a good Elvis song for us for Christmas, baby. <laughs> we need a song. We don't have a song. Listen, I want this to be our church song. I'm not kidding. Like, I want this to be our, this is our song. This is what, this is what communicates how we feel about everything we want to see God do. It's on Psalm 67. It has been the song of our family for years. If you would come to our kitchen table, you would see right above our table this huge sign that has Psalm 61 verses 1 and 2. And it used to be our habit like consistently until a few months ago. And I just remembered this morning that we haven't been doing it in a while. We have to start back. We would pray. Lily is nodding her head. She knows this. We would pray. We would say amen. And they would say this all together. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all. And we would stop and Josiah would go, peoples because we wanted that to be our our song so if you're there in psalm 67 say amen listen to what it says may god be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. 
Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity, and you guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. I was thinking last night, I asked myself this question before every sermon. At the end of the sermon, what do I want to have happened? I asked that. So I have to be careful not just to preach a text, but I have to have an intention of what I want to see happen. So what action do I want to see happen as a result? What I'm asking God to do in this moment is to stir up in our hearts more zeal for him. So we're singing a minute ago, and I'm praying that the zeal of the Lord would consume me. And I've told you before that zeal is the combination of three things. It is knowledge, it is passion, it is action. And so when we have a right knowledge of God that stirs a passion in our hearts that leads to action, that's zeal. And so what I'm asking the Lord to do is to stir up in our hearts zeal. Zeal for him, zeal for his glory, zeal for his church, zeal for lost people. That the very zeal of the Lord of hosts as it consumed Jesus would consume our church. And so that's my hope. And so I want to give you this morning three kind of exhortations that come from this text that summarize where we've been and where we're going in the hopes that it might stir up zeal in you. So I want to encourage you to write these down. The first one is this. Let us passionately pursue God's presence. That's first one. Let us passionately pursue God's presence. Let us not be half-hearted in our pursuit of God. And let us not pursue anything more than we pursue his presence. As you have heard me say, it is important for us to notice not only the words of the text, but the emotion of the text. God does not speak in monotone. This is very important. So we tend to read the Bible and everything God says, he says with the same voice. But do you not know, if you have ever had a mother or a father or a child, that tone of voice communicates? Even more than the words, the tone communicates. You can say the perfect words in the wrong tone and you've messed up. You can say the wrong words in the right tone and sometimes get lucky and be okay. <laughs> tone communicates. Sometimes God speaks with a voice of anger. Sometimes he speaks with a voice of compassion. Sometimes he speaks as a master. Sometimes he speaks with a father. You have to read a passage and think to yourself, what is the tone of this text? Because there is meaning in God's voice. And so what is the tone of Psalm 67? Well, the answer is, it's just this passionate plea. Oh God, God, we want your grace. God, we want your blessing. We want your face to shine upon us. It is this longing for God. I've used this phrase a lot. The Psalms tend to be heart cries for God. So they are cries, but often cries of our heart. Meaning often they're cries that we can't even articulate with our words. But there's this crying that comes out from our heart. This longing, this passion. And the reason I love the Psalms is because they give us a language for our heart. And you've got to connect with the Lord with your heart. You have to love him with all of your heart. And so you have to connect with the Lord in a heart level. And the Psalms just give us language to do that. It's so hard for us to know how to connect in a heart level. 
So the Psalms becomes cries of the heart, and this is a cry of the heart, and the heart is saying, God, we want you more than we want anything else. We want your grace, we want your blessing, we want your favor. And he says this, we want your face. Now, this is a great study to do sometimes. I've done this. I would encourage you at some point to read through the Psalms and look for the face of God. You can see it a lot in the book of Exodus. In the Psalms, there's a lot about God's face because in the same way, tone communicates, so it is that someone's face communicates, right? And so if you're talking to someone and they're looking off into the distance, that communicates, doesn't it? Like if you're trying to get someone's attention and they refuse to look at you, that communicates. And if you're talking to someone and they turn their back and put their face the other way, well, that really communicates. I'm not looking at you. It actually communicates, I don't care, and I don't want to hear what you have to say. We have all seen this, where I am not going to look at you. But you know the feeling of having a conversation with someone. Instead of gazing off into the distance, and instead of turning their back to you, or maybe even doing what I tend to do, which is look a thousand different places, there is this full engagement of face-to-face. Like there's this stop. When you're having a conversation, and by the way, everyone longs for this. Like this is good pro-marriage tip here. Everyone longs for a moment, just stop, just look. All right, what do you have to say? I'm just gonna be there and I'm gonna look and I'm gonna be quiet until you're done talking. That's what they want in Psalm 67 from God. Because Psalm 102 says, God, don't hide your face from me. And sometimes God does hide his face from people. And sometimes, even as believers, he has not hidden his face, but we feel if it's God has hidden his face. What we mean is we're crying out to God, and it feels like God's not listening, and it, and it feels like we don't have his attention, and it feels like he's turned his back on us. And even though he hasn't, there's this sense that God is not with us, and what this is saying is, God, we don't want that. We want your face turned towards us. We want all of your attention. God, listen to me. Look at me. We want all of your favor given to us. I love the way the New Living Translation says it. It says this, may his face smile with favor on me. Isn't that a great phrase? May God smile at me. Like we have his favor. Like God looks at us and says, I love you. I'm fired up about you. I'm so happy with you. That's what they want. They just want the face and the favor of God turned towards them. And I think a really good legitimate question we have to ask about a psalm like this as New Testament believers, because we are, we are on the other side of the coming of Christ. And so now we have a fuller understanding of the revelation of God that, that God has sent a savior for our sins. And the way in which our sins are forgiven is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what happens in the death of Jesus is that as we choose to trust Jesus, which every one of us has to come to a moment where we trust Jesus, what happened is that God takes every sin you've ever committed and places it upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus takes all the weight and all the shame and all the pain and he dies for it, paying for every sin once and for all. And then in exchange, we get his righteousness. That's a really great Christmas gift. The righteousness of God. And so now the Bible tells us that Ephesians 1 
says, now because you're united with Christ and have become adopted into the family, every blessing in the heavenly places belongs to you as a believer. So what's amazing is Jesus is the only one that deserves all the blessings, right? Jesus deserves all the gifts because he was perfect. We deserve nothing. Jesus deserves everything. When you trust Christ and are adopted into the family, every gift that Jesus deserves now comes to you. Every blessing Jesus deserves and only he deserves is now yours. Every blessing in the heavenly places. And then Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of God. God is for us. Who can be against us? And then Romans 5 says we have peace with God. We're not working for that. We're just declared reconciled at peace with God simply because we trusted Jesus. Didn't do anything else. We just trusted Jesus. And so if we already have his blessing and his favor, do we still need, as New Testament believers, the prayer of Psalm 67? And I would say, yes, this still should be the cry of our heart. And the reason is, is because as New Testament believers, we take a passage like Psalm 67. And what we say is, God, we know that these things are ours, but we want these things to be real to us. We want to experience that which was ours. I mean, the whole life of a New Testament believer is saying, this is mine, but I want to know it. I want to experience more of it. And so that's why in Ephesians 1, Paul would, would say to us, Every blessing is yours. And then he'd come to the end of Ephesians and he would say, oh God, would you give the church in Ephesus a spirit of wisdom and revelation? Because unless you give them revelation, they will have all of these things and yet not know they have them. They will have them and yet not experience them. So in a sense, you can't get any more than you already have, but you can experience for the rest of your life more of what is already yours in Christ. It's a prayer for more. This is why Paul gives more truth in Ephesians 2 and more in Ephesians 3 about being reconciled to God and right with God. And then in Ephesians 3, he says, oh God, again, I pray. He stops and prays for the second time that you may help them to know the fullness of your presence, that they might receive the fullness of everything you have. And so this is why we ask God for more. Because what we want is, is, is more of awareness of his love, more visible awareness of his power, more of his grace and more of his strength. Everything you need to fix your marriage, you already have. You just got to go get it. Everything you need for the anxiety of your heart is there. Everything you need to feel loved and accepted, and affirmed, it's there. It's about you by the power of the spirit of God, giving you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, coming to understand it and know it and take hold of it. And so that's the prayer. The prayer is, God, we are not going to settle for a little taste of you. We are going to drink and drink and drink, John 7. We are going to drink and drink and drink because we want to know everything that you have for us. We want to experience the fullness of all of your presence. And what I want to say to you, not just as a church, but individually, I don't want you to settle for anything less than every moment of your life going after more of God, pursuing his presence, the greatest longing of our heart, to pursue more of the presence of God. That's the first one. But the second one is not only let's aggressively, passionately pursue God's presence, but second, let's aggressively pursue lost people. Let's aggressively pursue lost people. That's the second one. The first is passionately pursue God's presence and then aggressively pursue lost people. A very important word in Psalm 67 is the first word of verse two. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says in verse one, may God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face shine upon us. And then verse two says that. So all of a sudden we have the motive, the motive. Part of the motive is we just want God. 
Part of the motive is that we have come to the realization that nothing satisfies me but God. There is no joy outside of God. There is no peace outside of God. There is no hope outside of God. And so I just want more of God. But there is a greater motive here in verse 2 that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. So there's a connection here, as we've seen over and over in this series, between my experience of God and my love for lost people. So I'm not going to re-preach all of that, but you have the Garden of Eden, right? God's presence coming in and his presence flowing out. And you have John 7, I'm drinking from his presence and it's flowing out. This is, this is what it's saying. I want you and I want to be full of you so that everyone around me might come to know you. Look, look at verse one. Do you notice three times it says the word us? It's all about us, right? Us, us. Be gracious to us and bless us and shine upon us. I love that because it gives us the freedom to just keep praying for more of God. And it's okay to pray for you. You gotta pray for you. You gotta pray for your family. You pray for you all the time. Like every moment, every breath is, oh God, I need help. Oh God, I need help. Just, just God, I want more. But there's no more us in verses two through five. Do you see that? There's no more us. Everything switches to earth and nations and peoples and peoples and nations and peoples and nations and peoples and peoples. Like all of a sudden, there is no more prayer for us. It is God. We want this. And the reason we want this is because we're longing for the salvation of people. And I think what I appreciate so much about Psalm 67, and we talked about this last week, we tend to think about evangelism as this kind of stiff, like mandatory thing that we have to do. Like we've got to get the presentation and we've got to say the right words and we've got to walk next door and do something super uncomfortable and everything about it just seems awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, but the emphasis here is that the real heart of evangelism is that every person on earth, including your neighbors in every nation, would just come to know the joy of the Lord. Listen, this is evangelism, that your way may be known on the earth. And so we have to preach the gospel. Your way, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. Here, here's the cry of our heart. We want the nations to be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O oh God. Let all the peoples praise you. And so the desire here is the spread of the joy of the Lord. So what if in evangelism what you thought is I want my neighbor to have joy. And the reason it's so important for us to enjoy God, and it's so important, I tell people this all the time, I want you to walk into Prince on a Sunday morning as a visitor and think, it must be good to know Jesus. Like that's why the lights are up and they're not dim and we're not like concerty here because we're all together and I want, I want it to be joyful. Like I, I want it to be happy. I want it to feel like you're glad to be here. Because if we don't experience that joy here, how will they ever come to experience it from us out there? So my desire is to stir up in you greater joy because the only thing we really want from every neighbor and every family member is that they might come to know the joy of the Lord that we have experienced as we have drink, drunk from him. And so the heart desire here is that people might know the joy of the Lord. Write down Psalm 97.1. This is such another great missions text. It says this, the Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. And so we're not just spreading a message. We're not just spreading a truth. We're spreading joyful worship. We want the nations to be glad and sing for joy. 
Listen to the way John Piper says this as he helps us to understand the connection between worship and missions. Listen, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. That's a big statement. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions. Listen to this carefully. Worship is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people in the greatness of God. We do missions to spread the gladness of God, the joy of God. We do missions. We do evangelism. We invite our neighbors to church. Why? Because we want them to enjoy God and know him. And so what I want to say to you, I want us to move forward aggressively pursuing lost people. Not like we're a salesman, but like we have experienced the joy of the Lord and all we want with a joyful countenance and a heart that is met with God and knows that he is good and right to say, I just long for you to know the joy of being right with the God who created you. That's the longing of our heart. And so we pursue God's presence. We pursue lost people. And the final one is this. Let us not only passionately pursue God's presence and aggressively pursue lost people, but finally let us sacrificially pursue the growth of the church. Write that down. Let us sacrificially pursue the growth of the church. You might have noticed the church is not mentioned in Psalm 67. Very astute. But this is not a personal psalm. Have you noticed that? Like it has personal implications because there is no us without the individual. But there are a lot of individual psalms. I mean, think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will feel no evil for you are with me. So that is a very personal psalm. And there are a lot of psalms that are intended to be just personal. You and God, this is not one of them. This is an us psalm. And the reason is because it exists to remind us that God has always worked through a people. And so in Genesis 12, God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And it's all Psalm 67 language. I am going to bless you and give you my favor. And the reason is, is because the nations are going to be blessed by you, not individually, but as a people. And God still has a plan for the nation of Israel but the implication for us as New Testament believers from Psalm 67 is that God is still working through a people and the people is called the church. What is the people of God? You take 1 Peter 2 language where it takes all of this Old Testament language. We are the chosen people of God. We are the people of God's own possession. So all of this Old Testament language and it tells us that that's the church. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the family of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. God has always intended to accomplish his work through the ministry of a local church. 
The only place that you can know your giftings and the place where you learn to use your giftings and the place in which God has called every believer to connect and sacrificially participate is the local church. And we're thankful for every other ministry and every parachurch organization. But the only thing that Jesus ever said the gates would not prevail against is the church. And so we sacrificially participate in the growth of the church. We long for the growth of the church. Every single person engaged, active, sacrificing for the sake of the church. Because this isn't us. Verse 6 and 7, the earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The means by which God is going to spread his joy to all people is through the ministry of the church. So I began by saying that, that I do have this deep conviction about the church. And let me... Let me say this about it. I want to be very clear here. When I think about the moral decline and insanity of our nation, it is almost, it is almost hard to comprehend, isn't it? And the only, the only way that we can actually comprehend it is we go to the end of Romans 1 and we start to realize what happens. What happens is as people continue to reject Jesus Christ and the revelation that he has given, their hearts grow dark. This is the end of Revelation 1. And as their hearts grow darker and darker, every time they're rejecting Jesus, there's more and more darkness until the moment in which the people that think they're wise are actually fools. And their foolishness increases. And it even says, claiming to be wise, they become fools. And so... You think to yourself, how in the world could anyone believe that? Like, how could anyone be that ignorant? And the reason is, is because their hearts are growing increasingly dark and they're becoming more foolish because of their constant rejection of the light. And so I've had these conversations with my kids before. Like, they, they look and they say, Dad, it doesn't, even make, it doesn't even make logical sense to me how anyone could say, that's not a baby in the womb. Like, how could anyone say that? Like, how could, you, how could you say that? And the only answer is because foolishness has taken over them. And they don't have the ability to see or to discern right. Can they've continued to reject the Lord. And how is it that, that grown people are, are choosing one of a thousand different identities and genders and whatever it is because of foolishness? Like, they just, there's just these things that seem so ridiculous and it's because the darkness of their heart. And I'm telling you, as you continue to reject the Lord, that's what happens. Greater darkness and greater foolishness. And so, and so here's my conviction. I'm convinced first that according to Jeremiah 29 and 1 Peter 1 and Romans 13, we have to, as a nation, be engaged and as believers in, in the process, in the political process. Like, we have to vote. We have to do whatever we can. Uh, people in Iran and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia would love the opportunity to vote. And so we vote. And, and, and you know what we do? We, we, we pray for godly people in the school board all the way to the White House. We just pray. I hear people talk about how bad the schools are. And I want to say, well, run for the school board. Like, go, go get on the school board. Like, make your voice hurt. You want to change it, start changing it. Don't just pray somebody else would change it. And, 
And I'm so thankful for the men and women, and even those in our church, who are making the dramatic sacrifice to be engaged in this thankless job of trying to make our community and our nation and our city better. It's such a hard job, and so we need to continue to raise them up and, and pray for them, and we need to continue to seek the good of the place that God has placed us. That's what God told his people exiled in Babylon, and so we must be involved. So I'm convinced of that. But I'm even more convinced that the hope for our nation is not politics, but a savior. Like, that's what I'm convinced of. I am absolutely convinced in every possible way that policies do not change hearts. Jesus changed hearts. And the greatest need of every single individual is not a new law, but it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way we change a nation is we change a community. And the way we change a community is, again, by a spirit-filled, gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, fired-up, active-engaged church of Jesus Christ. That's how we change a community. I'll tell you something. I've got another sermon here, but just I'm going to be two minutes. I've just listen. I'm almost done. But I, I'm going to, I got to just say this is stirring inside of me right now. There, one thing I can't comprehend about a younger generation is why they want bigger government and smaller churches. I don't get that. I don't get that. Because what they're wanting is a big government to take care of the needs that the church is supposed to be taking care of. And to be honest with you, what they want is a big government to fix issues that are there because of an inactive church. We don't need bigger government. We need bigger church. We need more church. We need the church doing more ministries, more active, more engaged in whatever their community needs. That's what the church is responsible to do. And if you want to change a nation, be a part of a church, active, engaged, praying, and changing the community that God has put us in. That's what we need. And I feel more convinced than ever than what we're doing here as a local church matters. And what we're doing is the hope of the world. And what we're doing is the unstoppable force of the kingdom of God. And so let's train, let's train hundreds of pastors and missionaries. Let's do it. Let's start a counseling center to, to help the emotional needs of the people in our community. Let's provide more space. Let's move to not be a, a, a smaller church, but a bigger church, reaching more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, meeting every need in our community that comes up, because that's nobody else's job but ours. Like, let's be that church. Let's see our nation begin to change one person at a time from the inside out as the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms a life. And as we move forward, let's make the, just the cry of our heart for your family, for yourself and for our church. Oh God, would you be gracious and bless us? God, would your face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.